Hi everyone, Brian Wyatt here. My wife, our kids, and I just returned from a trip to Yellowstone National Park. As you may know, the park is home to one of the world's super volcanoes, which last erupted about 630,000 years ago. Very close to the surface of the park is a huge pool of magma, which powers more than 10 thousand hydrothermal features, including hot springs, mud pots, and more than 500 geysers, about half of the geysers in the world. The most famous of these, of course, is Old Faithful. The park is also home to some incredible flora and fauna, from stunning trees and wild irises to grizzlies and bison. The bison cross park roads like they own the place, which they kind of do. In Yellowstone, there's a lot to see with the naked eye, right on the surface. But there's also a lot that scientists have uncovered under the surface using advanced technology. For example, the largest hot spring in the park is called the Grand Prismatic. The beautiful array of colors surrounding the spring as the water bubbles up really takes your breath away. But below the surface, scientists have discovered innumerable microorganisms called thermophiles, which thrive in the heat and digest the elements in the soil, leaving behind this rainbow of colors that we see with our eyes. In a similar way, the Bible presents a lot of incredible information, beautiful information, right on the surface. You don't need a, a seminary degree to spot it. But when we use techniques developed over the centuries since Christ rose from the dead, we find that there's often a deeper meaning below the surface of what we've read. Take Psalm 21, for example. On the surface, this psalm written by King David appears to be a simple liturgy meant to be read aloud by God's people as they celebrate his faithfulness to their kings through the ages, whether that king is David or one of his offspring. In the first seven verses on the surface, we are told how God grants the king salvation from harm in a world of constant warfare. He blesses the king financially and more importantly with life itself. These blessings are described as eternal in nature. God also gives the king joy in God's presence and keeps the king from being shaken. All of this harkens back to 2 Samuel 7, in which the prophet Nathan reveals to David God's promise that David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will endure forever. Then in the next five verses, the psalm reads like a prophet or a priest expressing confidence in the future successes of the king given by the Lord. We are told in particular that the king will seize his enemies and that the Lord will swallow them up. Though they plot evil and devise wickedness, they cannot succeed. Finally, in verse 13, this liturgy concludes with the congregation praising God, exalting him for his strength, praising him for his might. So that's what's going on on the surface. But there's also a lot more going on. In fact, when the Jews were exiled and the line of Davidic kings appeared to end, they began to wonder, what about that promise God made to David? His kingdom would never end? How could that be true without a living king in the line of David? 
Jewish scholars continued to pour over the scripture, they began to see that the language describing David in Psalm 21 was too great for a mere mortal king. So in their Talmud, it expressly states that Psalm 21 is not about God's faithfulness to David alone, but it's also a promise of faithfulness and success to a Messiah who would be the son of David. We Christians who stand on this side of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus very much agree with these Jewish scholars' interpretation of Psalm 21. We believe that the words don't really fit a mortal king. They they make the most sense for God the Son, the Christ, the one who truly lives forever. This is so encouraging. The words of Psalm 21 ascribe to a king attributes that no man other than Jesus fully embodies. Jesus is not just a king. He is the king. He reigns on his throne, not by brute force, but by an act of supreme love. As it says in verse 4, his days extend forever and ever. The Hebrew in verse 6 says that God has made his king to be to be blessings forever. This is how God fulfills his promise to Abraham, that through him and his offspring, all families will be blessed. And hasn't the Son of God been made joyful in the presence of God? For it was the, for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In verses 8 through 10, we learn that our Lord holds, uh, lay a hold of his enemies, swallowing them in his wrath and destroying their posterity. These enemies of God will not succeed, we are promised, in verses 11 and 12. So who are these enemies? To start, they are those who are opposed to God and his rule. Those who worship and serve created things. Those who hate the truth, rejecting his words the devil and his children, but also disease and sadness. And the last enemy to be defeated, death itself, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15. The enemies of God are our enemies, and thank God that he wins. So let's reread Psalm 21 with all of this in mind. The scriptures, that is both testaments, reveal God's plan to rescue his people and to be their king. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ came, he lived, he died, and now lives again, enthroned for the glory of God and for the joy of our salvation. How will we respond to this today? May God bless you richly as you look below the surface and live for him. Amen.